Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, here for the first time this season with... The original guest of the NASCAR <laughs> M- NBC podcast, Steve Otart. You are a resident guest for a long time, but since then you've been kind of busy. Kicked to the curb. It's okay. I was <laughs> excited to get the invite back. I didn't know what got me back to the top of the list, but I'll take it. Martinsville got you back, I think. You sure it was Martinsville? Didn't look like it to me. <laughs> yeah. We're going to get into that. Actually, looked a lot like Martinsville until the cars get on the <laughs> it's track. It's going to surprise some people, but I actually have a lot of things to discuss with you about Martinsville, despite the fact that the race certainly wasn't typical Martinsville. It was a Martinsville Speedway race, though, Stevie, I think, for William Byron. Lord Byron, as Kyle Petty calls him, his reign continues this year in the Cup Series, becomes the first repeat winner of the 2022 season, also wins the truck race and the Cup race at Martinsville on the same weekend. Emotional win because his mom was going through a health scare almost exactly a year earlier. But this also meant a lot to him because he had won, again, twice in three days at a track that's really hard to get around. And we heard after the race, he talked about how much he learned from Jeff Gordon, who I know you know a lot about. William Byron said that... So when I was a rookie, uh, Jeff was like, hey, uh, let's ride up to Martinsville together. Like, it wasn't even a question. It was like, hey, let's ride up to Martinsville together. I want to show you some things. So he walked me through this place. And just the things he told me, I don't know if they really clicked until I ran second that, that year to Truex, and they started to click, and I was like, all right, that's it. Like, that's the way you get around Martinsville. So uh, just having his, you know, just having his history in the 24 car definitely puts an emphasis on being good here because I feel like it's a place that is filled with history, and if you can win here in the 24 car, it's going to be something you always cherish. So um, definitely a special, and, you know, he's got, what, 93 wins, and however many clocks, you know, we've got a lot of, a lot of clocks to chase, but it's, it's cool to get that advice from him. Those little things that I picked up from him in my rookie year that I didn't really use for a few years. And then as soon as I got towards the front, I'm like, all right, that, that makes sense. So now Byron is carrying on that winning legacy of the number 24 Chevrolet at Martinsville, which you are a part of from having won at Martinsville with Jeff Gordon yourself. What did you make Stevie about how well William Byron did in adapting to Martinsville Saturday? Uh, it, it, you know, it's quite remarkable, you know, Martinsville is a very um, interesting track. It takes different skill sets than most every other racetrack. We've seen drivers, when they figure it out, they, they are good there for a long time. Having Jeff Gordon as a mentor is, is obviously very, very, very good for William Byron, but you still have to have the skills to do it. My argument would be is I know exactly how Jeff drives that racetrack, but I can't do it. You know, you still have to have that the, the ability to do it. Uh, and I say that because, to your point, I crew chiefed him for years, 
Uh, and I've seen how he used to methodically take apart that half-mile paperclip, and it was impressive. And that's really what William did. What William did was – now, I believe him and Chase had the best cars, but it's easy to lose with the best car. What William did was really just execute. I, I, I don't want to make it sound that simple because it's far from, but his execution at his age is really, I think, what makes him one of the guys that we're looking to for a very long-storied career is, is he's young. He has, you know, people got to remember, he moved up arguably almost, I would say, too fast in my mind. He had one truck year. I think he broke a motor, didn't win the championship. It was kind of not controversial, but kind of disappointing. Then he went to Xfinity, had his success, and that was right on the cup. You know, but looking back on it, I think when, when you have an owner like Rick Hendrick that says, listen, you're my guy. You don't need to keep running on Saturdays. You're my guy. I know you're my guy. So just come and learn it on Sundays. And by the way, I'm going to let you learn with Chad Canals. He's pretty good at this. He's going to teach you a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, I think even Rick knew, hey, Chad's not going to do this forever. Don't worry. He's not going to be your guy forever. Just come in. Let Chad beat you up a little bit. Let him make you the best version of you. And then we're going to pair you up with a person. I don't know who dreamt it should be Rudy Fugel, but what a great idea. Only their second season together. You would think it's been 10. The way they communicate, the way they talk. He stood on top of the pit box for the truck win a couple days earlier. And you know what I like about William is he looks like he's just having a good time driving a race car in any sport. When you watch a competitor having a good time doing what they love to do, man, they end up pretty good at it. And he's been driving a lot of race cars lately. Like we said, he won in the truck, doing a late model as well. And I heard you talking about this earlier today on our call that you think he's doing maybe some Kyle Larson things here that he's not getting enough credit for. So I believe that people say, oh, I'm in the sim and I'm preparing. I'm, okay, so a driver can do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. First of all, he has to be physically in shape. They all are now. That's, just check that one out. That's not an advantage. That's a requirement. They're all great physical conditioning. They, some more than others, are doing a good job mentally toughening themselves up. That's a skill set you can learn. I don't believe. Some have more natural ability than others, but if you don't think you can make your brain stronger for competition, then you and I are going to disagree on this. I'm a big EQ believer. I believe there's a lot to that, and I think you can. There's a reason some of the greatest golfers in the world, heart rate doesn't go up in the biggest situations. It's because they've worked on it. But I believe winning is not just a result of your talent and hard work. It's something you have to practice. So I have my man, Russell. I can't take credit for this. Statman Russell, William Byron in 2022. February 14th, won at New Smyrna. February 19th, won again at New Smyrna. February, or excuse me, March 19th, won at Hickory. All three in late models. You can eye roll all you want late wow. models. That's a stacked field of late models. March 20th, the day after winning at Hickory, he goes to Atlanta and wins the cup race. He then goes April 7th, much before April 7th, says, I want to run a truck at Martinsville. Can you make that happen, Mr. Hendrick? Mr. Hendrick gets it done. He gets put into the 7 Spire truck, goes to Victory Lane. Two days later, comes back, wins the cup race. It's a lot of wins in 2022. <laughs> so, so we made a lot about Larson because I'm not going to, you know, Kyle Larson, what he did is remarkable. And, and, sure. But the concept of lining up on the front row of any race and getting it done, that means something. I believe that the best of the best, when William Byron lines up on the front row at a truck race, he doesn't think it's a truck race. I mean, he doesn't think any more or less about the truck next to him or the truck behind him. He doesn't think it's a Sunday or a Friday or a Thursday or a late model. I think in that moment, he's just do using his everything he knows to win at that moment. And I think that test of mental and physical and a pro all of that together there's no simulator for that. I mean, you, you got to step up and do it. Like, yeah. it doesn't matter. 
I think people are wrong if they think athletes – I think what makes a great athlete great is they want to win all the time. And I don't think he tries harder to win on Sunday than he does a late model race in Hickory. I think he tries really hard to win both of them. Well, that's sort of the refrain that I think we talk about with Kyle Larson when he goes to the, all these dirt races and you know he ran like 100 dirt races, I think, in 2020 and won some ungodly number, like 50%. That's what we w- would say was that it didn't matter what the stage was. He just went to win every night. But you know, until you read off those stats from Russell at Racing Insights, which we greatly appreciate him supplying that, I had totally forgotten about New Smyrna and Hickory and William Byner. Is it the Kyle Larson kind of already had that reputation for being the guy who runs everything. Why aren't we giving William Byron enough credit? Because you're right. I mean, he's the winningest cup driver. I mean, Grant's a very small sample size, but he's got more wins than anybody in the cup series this year, and he's got these wins in these short tracks. Maybe we should be talking about this more. Well, I think he's a little easy to overlook, overlook because he is young and kind of ho-hum, and, 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 and y- you know, he isn't flashy. Yeah. He doesn't make a lot of waves, both on social media and in person, and I think he's okay with all that. None of those are negatives. I just think that that he's just quietly going about his business. You know, I don't know. I asked the same question about Alex Bowman. You know, I feel like I never give the guy enough credit. William Byron's the same way. Um, you know, I would tell you that if I'm Chad Knauss, I feel pretty good about my driver lineup. The youngest driver yeah. of the four have won two races this year. Feeling pretty good. Uh, you're probably feeling pretty good if you're William Byron, too, because the only member of that driver lineup at Hendrick Motorsports that is not signed beyond 2022, William Byron remains in a contract year. And when I had Kyle Petty on the podcast here, Stevie, a few weeks ago, he said he believes that William Byron, as he put it, is the anchor of Hendrick Motorsports, even more so than the guy they just signed to a five-year extension a few months ago, Chase Elliott. KP was saying that he believes that William Byron is the future of Hendrick. So if you're William Byron right now and you've won two races and you're in this contract here, does the price go up a little bit more each time you now step into the negotiating room with Rick Hendrick? So if I'm William, I'm not looking for more money. I'm looking for more longevity. Yeah. And, and I say that because Rick Hendrick's Rick Hendrick's approach at greatness has been well documented since the 90s, right? Probably didn't win a lot, a little bit with Tim Richmond, DW. Jeff Gordon came on, they won a championship, and really they haven't stopped winning. There's been some up and down years. But I can't think of more than about an 18-month stretch where perhaps they were down. So if I'm William, I am going to Rick and saying, hey, I want you to know my priorities. I love driving here. I want to drive here for a long time. I want to have wealth past driving. You know, Rick, you're, a, I think, a billionaire at this point, right? You have dealerships. You're a businessman. Help me be good for the rest of my life. I don't need more money. You know, he's going to be, whatever the contract he signs us, he's going to be good. He's going to be fine. And I think that's his personality. Knowing his dad, Bill, who is in the money business of managing money, I think, you you know, it's kind of like, hey, you know, we don't want to, we want to make sure we have all the right parts to make sure the car is still fast. We don't want to, like a QB, right? I I might have all this leverage, but I don't want to take all this money if it hurts me. But I think I'm worth it. Give me a nice long-term plan. Tell me why I can drive here for the next 10 or 15 years. Tell me why when I get done driving, I'm not going to worry about my income. That's like, If I'm William Byron, that's the strategy I'm taking. That's interesting, too, because when you say that, that makes me think about, you mentioned Rudy Fugel earlier. William Byron had a big role in hiring Rudy Fugel. And granted, now William Byron's only, what, 24 years old. To your point, he's soft-spoken. He's not a real demonstrative, take-charge, assertive kind of guy. But would you maybe negotiate for a little more autonomy? As a driver, or do they kind of ask for those sorts of things? Like, hey, I offer go a little bit of money if I have a little bit more of a say-so in how the team's structured. I think it's what's important to him. You know, I think Kyle Larson, it was important to him to drive everything else. 
Um, I have no idea how his contract's structured, but I am confident that if Rick Hendrick didn't want him driving everything, he wouldn't, but yet he is. So if William Byron wants to run late models and wants to run a truck and wants to run all this stuff, then may I don't know what William wants. Yeah. I think the most important thing for any athlete is don't get caught up when everyone else thinks you deserve. Go in there and tell them what's important to you. I think Rick Hendrick's the type that would probably deliver what's important to you, but I don't think it's as simple as dollars and cents. You know, I've said this about Joey Logano for a long, long time, that I think he is the most valuable franchise driver in the garage. And I want the listeners to understand, when I say franchise driver, I mean age versus numbers of starts versus wins versus championship. I still feel like he's right there. I would say Kyle Larson's probably up there with him now. Experience Now he is a champion, right? Because I need all of that because I believe a franchise driver is, you know, he could build a program around young stars, right? So now William Byron maybe isn't my franchise driver quite yet. While he is very successful, he doesn't quite have the, the pedigree, history, or resume of a Joey Logano. Let's be honest. There's a lot of starts there. But, man, if I was a new manufacturer with an unlimited budget, he would be Joey Logano's teammate, yeah. right? Because I think William Byron, now that he's wanted a short track and a speedway and at Miami – Ooh, I'm starting to see him kind of, you know, branching out, success at different style racetracks. I think his overall value is very high, but you also got to be careful what you wish for. You know, the, the advantage he has is he's in great equipment. He, I don't want to say under the radar, but, you know, he doesn't carry the burden of Chase Elliott week in and week out. Now, he probably internally does. I don't think he thinks any less of himself. Like, he goes out there to try to win every week. But, you know, like Chase Elliott, the world's watching. And, and so sometimes it's kind of nice, like, and he found a pretty good little niche spot to have a lot of success. Yeah. You know, uh, why not? Just enjoy it. Certainly the spotlight mostly falls on his teammate, Chase Elliott, the most popular driver in NASCAR. And he's the other guy I wanted to talk about from Hendrick. In the podcast today, Stevie, he leads the first 185 laps at Martinsville. Chase Elliott does. The number nine Chevrolet seems to be a top two or a top three car. Chase Elliott is running fourth when the caution flies with just under 90 to go. And crew chief Alan Gustafson says, let's pit for four tires. We've got to try something here. I want to try to get you back up to the lead, but I don't think we can do it if we don't take this gamble. So Chase Elliott restarts 12th with 85 laps to go in a track position race that has seen little tire fall off, and he makes up only two spots the rest of the way and finishes 10th. So already a very frustrating season for Chase Elliott, Steve. He's the only Hendrick driver without a win. What does that mean, do you think, for the number nine Chevrolet team to have a night like that at Martinsville? He starts on pole, seems to have this dominant car, and then it just all goes to pot. So it's easy to say, not knowing the details, there was some beating and banging at times. I wonder if he didn't bend something in his car where it didn't drive as well or they didn't stay on top of the track adjustments, him and Allen. I, I don't know what it is. I think the most important thing to me is Allen and Chase, I'm going to equate to the Jimmy and Chad relationship. All Chase knows at the Cup Series is Allen. And Allen is a very, very, very talented crew chief. And they have been lockstep, arm in arm from the beginning. Never have you heard a side word from either one about one another. Now they won a championship, and now they have gone through this lull of delivering wins. That's kind of what I'll call it. It seemed clearly that it was kind of at the hands of Kyle Larson a year ago. A lot of seconds, a lot of battles. Perhaps could have won California this year. One block kind of took him out of that race. But, but I do think that it's this point where it's very important that the two of them are on the same page for the goals. You know, I learned throughout my career that it was important that my driver and I knew what our goal was this day. And it's easy to say win, but then when you don't have a winning car, like at what point, lap 200, you say, hey, we're going to run top five or top 10. You know, Alan made a call to try to get Chase Elliott a win, right? We're going to put tires on. It didn't work out. So the most important thing to me is, was Chase at the same time thinking, I'm with you. Let's try to win the race. Or he's like, man, I'm, 
I'm running fourth. Can I just run fifth here and have a good race? Like, I don't know where they're at mentally, and I I don't need to. It's not my job. They have to work together. But I also want people who listen to understand that, you know, I've always said this. A driver-crew chief relationship is a lot like a marriage. And it's okay that it's not great all the time. I've been married for 20 years. It hasn't been roses every day for 20 years. You put work into a healthy relationship. It's no different with your drivers and crew chiefs. Dale and I had days where we could finish each other's sentences, and then we had days that we didn't want to split a meal. And that's okay. That's, you have to challenge each other to be the best. And I, and I have to, you know, I go back to Jimmy and Chad, right? They won seven championships. People forget they won a bunch after the milk and cookies meeting. Right? They got to the point where Rick felt he had to sit them down because it was all unraveling, and they rebounded to this. So I do believe that the lack of wins out of the nine car is a real conversation that I'm not saying Allen and Chase have to have, but he's going to have to start answering these questions in the media, and, and a good media member is going to ask those questions, whether it upsets Chase or not. So I just think that as long as Chase and Allen can have those tough conversations together, they're going to be fine. And knowing Allen, they're willing to, but it hurts when your teammate beats you. I was beaten by Jimmy Johnson countless times. I know. It hurts less when someone else beats you because you think they might have something you don't. But when your own teammates are beating you, and what I saw on Saturday that concerned me is, to your point, I thought at one point, or for a big chunk of the race, they had a race-winning car. Right. So the other races, I feel like they didn't win, but they didn't have the car to win. I think for 180 laps of that race, they had the car to win. Unfortunately, I feel sort of the narrative for the Elliott team for the last year, really, because it's been a long time since he's been in victory lane. I think he won twice last year, and it's been, I think, since Phoenix in the championship race that he's won on Oval, and it just seems like the second half of races is where they seem to just fade, much like what we saw Saturday. Right, and, and you have to ask... You know, now, this year, it's with the new car. Is Chase being able to get the feel he wants? Does Allen have the tools that he used to have to give Chase? You know, So the beauty is if you have no notebook and no success, a new car is great because you hadn't figured out the answer to the last riddle. Well, if you had the answer to the last <laughs> riddle, the last thing you need is a different riddle. But yeah. No, 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 no. I like when we had all the same questions. <laughs> yeah. I kind of knew the answer going in. Um, so that's real challenges that are going to have to work over. It's um, the good, bad, and the ugly. I mean, listen, look at Chase's career. He lost the lead on pit road. Saturday night, you know, it wasn't him. It was it was a pit stop. Had a chance to win a championship because some miraculous quick thinking a few years back with his pit crew at Martinsville. So yeah. it kind of circles back yeah, around. It's the same thing, and listen, yeah. we saw Chase hard on himself when he when he had a few losses early in his career, and he bounced back to be a champion. I would expect nothing different now, but it is gonna it's gonna test the the fortitude of the relationship between Allen and Chase. Not because they don't believe in one another, but just Man, it's hard when you kind of get into a lull. So going back to Saturday Night at Martinsville, what you're talking about, about having the driver and crew chief on the same page, how does that conversation happen? How long does it need to be to say, hey, if the caution flies with 90 to go and you're in fourth and it doesn't look like we can win, we're just going to stay in fourth. We're not going to try to pitch you and get you up to the front again. So listen, I never won a championship as a crew chief. Um, Alan, I don't know what his stats are, but I'm confident he has more wins than I do as a crew chief. So I don't know how he handles his team. Uh, you know, for me, it was we, we loaded the truck every week to go win the race. I used to have practice and qualifying, and you kind of realize maybe we didn't have it this week. Let's just have a good day. And you kind of would use the weekend to change that signature. I don't know how Alan and, and Chase discussed that. You know, in my mind, Alan, I didn't hear the radio, but Alan called him in as a pit call. Now, whether I don't know if he thought where he would restart is where he restarted or if it was best bet. I don't think it was important in Martinsville. I think the big, most important thing now is if they can relive it and say, hey, 
I did this because I thought it was our only chance to win. Are you on board? Did I? Should we have just taken a good top five? What do you think? And I think, you know, the one thing I will say against about Chase is I, there's no doubt that he's going to support Allen and whatever Allen does. So now I think it's just be like, you know, I don't think he has to tell us, and I don't think he'll ever tell us. But I think Chase will tell Allen, man, I wish that we would have just stayed out there was our best chance. Or, no, I'm glad you did it. You know, it's kind of a review is going to be their best point moving forward. Yeah. But it was an in- listen, it was an interesting Martinsville, to say the least. Yeah, and I am proud that we've made it 20 minutes, I think, into this podcast <laughs> without talking about the race itself because, unfortunately, that was a big focus, a big topic of discussion about how it, what you said at the outset, Stevie, it just it didn't feel like Martinsville. I mean... I'll, I'll be candid. It was just, it was a little bit lackluster. No on-track lead changes, four lead changes all in the pits. Uh, the cars are fairly well spread out. Aerodynamics seemed to matter more than ever. There was hardly any bumping and banging, only four caution flags, two of them for stages. I'll just run through some of what the driver feedback was. Kevin Harvick said, the car is fine. The gear ratios are way wrong. Denny Hamlin agreed on the gear ratios. He also said, kind of looking at the overall racing, it just seemed like big picture. It was tough to, to move up and down. It sucked. Yeah. I mean, whew. I mean, just the flatter the track, uh, these cars are really, really, really tough to pass. I mean, Phoenix is tough. Uh, Richmond's tough. This track is tough. I mean, it's, it's the design we got. So there's no easy fix. Um, you know, it would take a kind of a complete redesign uh, to got to figure something out. Tires aren't laying down any rubber, and our gearing was way off. Obviously, this weekend we, um, you know, that's not really on NASCAR. That's kind of on the engine builders that, that messed that up. And you know, they're they're trying to collect their data point that, and they said, you know, we just missed it by a mile. So, uh, you know, it's a combination of the car, track, and tire. It's it's those three things put all together that equal what we have. But you know, it's we're learning. We're trying to trying to get better, but no idea how you fix this thing right now. We want big changes. We have to be testing now for next year because we have to get new parts made. I mean, we can't even get the parts we got now. So everything is just so delayed and like reactive that. You know, we can't go to the end of this season and say, all right, well, let's address the racing at Martinsville, Phoenix, and Richmond. Like, it's too late by then. It is too late. You can't get the parts. So we have to be testing now. And what I think probably we could or should do is just get a couple, you know, engineers or something from each team to collaborate on what do we think would make it better. Because that's what happened when we retested Charlotte is they, they – NASCAR came to us and said, please help us, like we're, we're, we're in trouble and we need your help and so they got together, the teams got together and said let's try this, try that and we made it better. The car was dramatically better from when I tested in Charlotte from when we went back or you know when the guys went back but it doesn't address this type of racing. Yeah, This one certainly has got to get fixed. Cole Custer said, you know it just seemed at least from my point of view like the cars would actually get a little bit aero tight in the corners and when you're back in traffic it just made it so you couldn't really get to the guy's bumper and really do what you needed to do and uh, everybody's cars were pretty equal honestly too and no rubber got put down I think they definitely need a a different tire because there's just no rubber getting put down there's nobody really coming and going throughout a run because there's no rubber getting put down and then finally Jeff Gordon said well, I, I was surprised. I'll be honest. You know, I was, we were trying to speculate what was going to happen. I was talking to all the crew chiefs and kind of getting their thoughts. And 
I don't think anybody would have, have guessed that, that it would have gone, you know, be, especially because it's a new car, right? And they're shifting every lap, and, and it's easy to lock the left front tire up, and, and there's just, just a lot of things. And I think we all knew you'd be deeper in the braking zone. Lap times were faster. Um, you know, the, the, there wasn't a lot of fall off. Typically, in that situation, you would say, oh, well, then people are going to get more desperate to make these bonsai moves, and then the cautions are going to come. Or, hey, what do we not know about this car that, that you know, could, could kind of bite us today? And didn't see any of that. I, I think that, and I think Rudy's already said this too, track temperature, when the track's this cold and it doesn't lay rubber, the, the, the tires just don't give up. And, and I'd almost say Goodyear has too good of a tire here right now because, uh, you know, I think the racers want to see the fall off and, and, and be able to see line changes set up, you know, matter over a long run. And, I mean, they're running qualifying laps almost every lap. It, it just did not fall off near as much as anybody thought it would. That's night racing, especially cold night race. So, Stevie, <laughs> what do you make of what NASCAR has on its hands here at Martinsville? After this was the debut, the Ballyhoo debut of the next-gen car, I had DJ on the podcast last week, he and myself and many others, but you know, he being a, a former winner there and a Hall of Famer said he thought it was going to be a really physical, memorable race. It didn't pan out. How can NASCAR address this uh, and make sure that this is not the same type of race the next time there? Well, I think it starts with, I think it can be addressed. I was at the first Charlotte Oval test and drivers got out wide-eyed thinking this is going to be a disaster. The industry as a whole circled up, came up with some options about ride heights and some other things that didn't really change the way the card like you and I aren't going to see any different in the car and yet the mile and a half races have been very good so I believe that this was just a miss it was a flat miss I think the ratios were wrong I think the ride heights need to be adjusted I think they're too aerodynamic um, I think that the night race didn't help cool temperatures Goodyear brought a tire and when you put it on cold concrete it never seems to work so, you know, there was a lot, I think a lot of thing, a lot of bad ingredients made a bad meal. So I don't think we have to kind of reinvent it. I think we just need to work on, on each ingredient a little bit. I don't think, you know, you have to completely give up on it. And my hope is that, look, I'm not an engineer and I'm not currently, you know, one of these crew chiefs sitting on top of the pit boxes to know exactly what they changed at Charlotte. I know what they changed, but I wasn't in the room with, hey, this is what's going to fix this, fix this, fix this. I'm confident they can fix it. I do agree with Denny. I think that the industry and the fan wants to hear some movement. Mm -hmm. I think they need to address – I know they have a long time until we go back to Richmond, until we go back to Martinsville, but we have a New Hampshire race out there. I consider that a short track. Dale Jr. and I will disagree on that. You know, I think <laughs> – I think there is some things that need to be addressed for sure. Not every race is going to be great, and I think the risk of having bad races, I will say. So that's kind of what all the drivers say. Now, to the Jeff Gordon statement, I do think it's interesting that, you know, these cars are flying, and they aren't slowing down. They have so much tire and so many brakes. I just wonder if those desperation-type moves at Martinsville will even be possible. Because I saw some pretty good contact, and the cars didn't even, like, they're, they're kind of locked down with how much tire these cars have and how much brakes they have. So I don't know if they're ever going to get them upset enough where you can kind of push and slide them around. Interesting. So that would totally change the nature of beating and banging at Martinsville, in a sense. Well, I think that, so, so let me go through this. I think shifting doesn't help a race. All it yep. does is help a bad car stay in front of a good one, which is a problem. I think NASCAR... You know, I'm not going to put it on them. Look, these gear ratios are, are helped by engine manufacturers, and a lot of people have a vote in this. 
I think that the car needs to be less aerodynamically de dependent. I think that the underwing and the diffuser is pretty efficient, even at very low speeds. So I don't know if that's a ride height, some of the vertical strakes. I'm not going to be an aerodynamicist and claim I know, but I would definitely take away some of the aerodynamics. I would make mechanic Martinsville be all about mechanical grip. Um, and then, you know, I, I would circle back with Goodyear. The fall off was not what I expected, but man, it looked like the winter. I mean, it snowed before the race. So, right. you yeah. know, it's easy to pick on Goodyear, but at the same time, you know, it's going to be 80 degree. You know, it was interesting that it was a night race. I think the concept on paper looks good. It was Masters weekend. I think Sunday against the Masters is probably not the best time to run that race. Yeah. But, you know, they definitely didn't get warm April weather in Martinsville. They yeah. got cold. And that was another factor. I mean, the, the fact that the track didn't take rubber, and obviously mm -hmm. it, it should if the conditions are warmer. I mean, there, it seemed like there were just plethora of factors, this confluence of all these things, the car, the gear ratios. the. But you know what I like, though? is I haven't heard a, no, 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 it was good. You didn't see the passes. You didn't see this stat or there's, that stat. I feel like in the none past, of that. <laughs> I feel like yeah. in the past, I was given an argument on why it was a good race. You just didn't think it was. Right. Like now I feel like, okay, look, we all admit it. Hey, man, we got it. It was a bad race. Um, we're all in. Everyone agrees. Drivers yeah. agree. Crew chiefs agree. I haven't heard from NASCAR, but since there's been no rebuttal, I think they would agree. The fans agree. Like it's it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. It's a bad race. Like, I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed for the fans that came out and supported, and I'm thankful they came. But, you know, if, if people think that we're going to bat perfect, then, man, I, I think they're setting their expectations just too high. It was a bad race. So now the focus hopefully switches to your point. Like, let's get this resolved. Let's figure out how we can address this. And as you said, Denny suggested NASCAR and the teams work together the way they did in off-season testing for NextGen at Charlotte. They had a test there uh, in November that did not go very well. The industry regrouped uh, in Nashville at the award ceremony and they, they put a full force effort the next few weeks and they came back to Charlotte mid-December and shazam, like somehow they had a better driving car and they had better racing and everything was sort of addressed in, in a, a good way. You know, Denny said there's some urgency here because you're working with parts being in high demand and short supply. So uh, you're right. It's a ways before we get back to Richmond and Mark. I was looking at my schedule now. Cause yeah. It's, it's I mean, Kansas. Well, we go. When's the next real short track? Gateway. I mean, if Gateway's a little bit of a yeah, short Gateway track. Yeah, Gateway would sort of be. That would be June. At New Hampshire, July. And then Richmond, August. Yeah, I think, September, I think I would be disappointed as a race fan if we went to July, New Hampshire race was not something. Yeah. I don't think we can, as an industry just afford to wait because Richmond wasn't the most exciting Richmond race ever. Now, listen, Richmond's had some long green flag runs in the past, but it was, you know, and even Phoenix. How about this? We've had, what, seven or eight races this year, and the bottom three have been the mile and under, in my opinion, as a race fan. Forget stats. Take whatever you want. I don't care who won. If you're just asking me, the bottom three have been the mile and unders. So, so all right, well, we got another mile coming at New Hampshire. Let's, you know, maybe even Gateway. The uh, success of the next-gen tests in the offseason at Charlotte, three months lead time. That gives you some optimism that there's enough there that this can get done. I really do. I actually think that, you know, when we, when we say change, I think the subtlety of the change is way less than people are going to expect. Like I, you know, it's not like the old car. You don't have to cut spoiler and cut quarter panel. No, 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 no. Like they have some knobs they can turn, right? Like rear ride height massively changes the aerodynamics of this race car. The underbody stuff you don't even see. There's some vertical fencing up around the engine. Hmm. That changes it dramatically. Like, I think they can make the gearing. You know, so so 
what Denny says is right about, hey, everybody runs the same stuff, so timing is a concern. Fair. Counter. Everybody runs the same stuff, so it's really easy to change. Because we don't have to have a Toyota fix and a Chevy fix and a Hendrick fix and a Gibbs Good fix. And a, yeah. Nope, nope, nope. We just call manufacturer, oh, what is it, oh, Acme, oh, Acme International. <laughs> hey, that arrow piece you make, yeah. we want to flip it, change it, run it upside down, bend it in half, and deliver it to the teams like this. So my point is, I think that's, the that's you know, we all talk about, oh, common parts, and is it good, yeah. is it bad, is it this? I think it's helped IndyCar for the last few years figure out the Speedway. They've, they've gone through a lot of different aero packages. I now think NASCAR has that ability to kind of really make adjustments across 36 charters very quickly. The beauty of mass production with spec vehicles. They're, yeah, and if you can just get through that supply chain, whatever it is the world's going through, yeah. it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. All right, one more note on Martinsville was the Xfinity race Friday night. Certainly a memorable ending, or really the aftermath was the most memorable part about it. It was won by Brandon Jones, but of course the story was the fight after the race between two drivers going for the Dash for Cash $100,000 bonus, Ty Gibbs with his helmet on, Got in several clean shots on Sam Mayer, and a NASCAR official, unfortunately, was hurt in the fracas. Gibbs said, Yeah, well, I tried to talk to him, and he got all in my face, so, you know, at that point, you gotta, we got to start fighting. But, you know, it just, we got put in a bad position there. Um, and I, the only thing I'm mad about is this one didn't have anything. He had, you know, he wasn't going to get past the six team there, and I just got hit in the left rear, but... It's just frustrating. I just got driven the fence to the end, but you know, I was on the other side of it last week, so that's just part of it. Sam Mayer said, Yeah, I mean, I just 100 grand on the line, put the bumper to him because that's what short track racing is all about, and he got upset, and yeah, 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 short track racing, all that nonsense, so whatever. He threw a couple punches, they, they were weak, so I can't say much about that, it's kind of funny, but um, I just put the bumper to him for 100 grand, and he got upset about it, but he's been doing that to everyone else for every week so far, so I don't understand how it can be that one fight. You, you tell him to take his helmet off? That's what it kind of looked like on the video. Yeah, it's kind of funny because he walked up to me, I had my helmet off already, and he kept his helmet on, so obviously he was scared about something, or he had it in his mind to throw a punch the whole time, so that's on him, not me. Uh, I'll talk to him if he wants to, but I'm fine. I couldn't care less. I'm going to move on and race everybody just as hard. Because uh, that's what that's what the Xfinity Series is all about. So I'm going to go out there, do my best, and he can do whatever he wants. And at the end of the day, anyone can do whatever they want to him because he's put that, himself in that reputation. So it doesn't matter. So your take, Stevie, on the finish of the Xfinity race and all that transpired between Ty Gibbs and Sam Mayer. And as we're recording this on late Monday afternoon, should and will NASCAR take some action here? All right, so I think I'm going to take an about face because I think if I go back and read all my quotes, I've probably been the guy that said, oh, I'll let the drivers figure it out after the race. They're the only ones behind the wheel. But watching the, the altercation and then through social media, it appears that there was an official injured to some degree. There was some tweets about him being uh, tended to, and then I think Sam Mayer came out and said, hey, if someone was injured, an official was injured, I feel really bad. So we've officially crossed the line in my opinion, right, because while I love racing – and I love disagreements, and I love a good heated argument. I think a physical altercation has has, cro- has we've gone too far, right? Like now, it's it's especially in these younger drivers. So I like Ty Gibbs as a person. He's a well-spoken young man, but I've been very disappointed in his actions the last two weeks. A week ago at Richmond, he gets passed clean as a whistle by his teammate John Hunter Nemechek. He composes himself, chases him back down, as a great race car driver will do. Gave him a couple shots in the bumper off turn two. Richmond, totally acceptable. Love it. Drives up door-to-door down into turn three. 
and then in my mind puts on a very, in my opinion, as a race fan, I'm not a driver. People talk driver's code. I'm not a driver, so I surely don't know the code. Uh, as a race fan, that wasn't racing. He went down to turn three and straightened the wheel. I could have finished that pass. I mean, listen, you moved him up. I, I'm going to support that. But now go beat him. Like, go down to turn three, run a better corner than him. Don't drive And through. I'm even <laughs> saying as a race fan, if it had been his first ever win, I might have looked past it. If it was for a championship, I might have said, man, I don't love it. But so much was on the line. It was a Richmond win for the grandson of the owner who's already won a bunch of races. I'm like, man, I didn't like that. John Hunter Nemechek is trying to build his career, and you kind of, man, you just kind of brushed him off. Now you go the next week, get shoved out of the way by another driver, and you want to go yell at him. Which way do you want? I believe that my frustration with Ty is that you can't do it and then be mad when it's done to you. And then the physical altercation. So I don't think NASCAR, how do I say this? I think it would be very unfair to all of a sudden take some severe action on these two drivers because we have seen altercations on pit road and drivers react in what they think the playing field is. But I would love to see NASCAR draw a line now and say, all right, you know, we've been silent. The competitors and their choices have pushed us to this line. So here is the new rules and regulations of issues on pit road. You know, because the problem I have with it is what happens when, God forbid, there's this official that somehow got hurt. You know, what happens when there's a real injury? Like, you know, I hope this a man or woman, I'm not sure who it was for the officials, is fine. I, I hope that. And what happens when it's one of our stars? What happens when one of our stars gets taken out of next week's event because of an injury in a post-race? Like, I mean, at some point, we have to leave it on the racetrack. It's okay to be mad at one another. Yeah. And I got love a good heated disagreement. Yeah, we love the emotion. You just but don't you know, want like, guys fracturing. Well, I guess I look at it like this. You know, Nate, you and I can get a disagreement in a parking lot. We can yell at each other. But is it okay if, if I took a swing at you out here in the parking lot? I mean that's what, that's not okay. I mean, like you, like when is it okay to punch a guy? I'm like, you, you know, I'm of the opinion, and I've taught my children that you can throw a punch if you're defending yourself, your person, your being, your you know, your space, because someone has aggressively right. put you in a bad position. I mean, hanging over all of this is there's a pretty big debate in society going on over this right now over what happened in Hollywood right. a few weeks ago. So, so yeah, that, that's another layer to this that I think kind of comes into it. To, to your point, Steve, I, I agree with you. Like. I mean, I don't want to sound as if, you know, I don't realize that the 1979 Daytona 500 no, was a right, huge right, right. building block for NASCAR. Yeah, I mean, Kelly Yarbrough and Bobby and Donnie Allison in that fight was, was yeah. a huge part of what NASCAR was about. And that was 43 years ago. Yeah, but... Have we not gone anywhere <laughs> in 43 years? Yeah, but like the moment we're at in society right now and uh, just sort of like what happened with the official getting hurt. There, it feels like there are just a lot of other factors in play here that maybe you consider. That's you know. where I'm at. And, 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 and in the end, I don't... Like I said, I think I'm changing course. I believe there's audio out there somewhere of me saying, oh, I'll let them fight it out. Yeah. I don't think I'm there anymore. I think, in my mind, the rules are very clear. If you're racing for position, NASCAR's getting involved, you guys deal with it because you're drivers and you have to race each other every week. Okay. I didn't like the move that Gibbs had on John Hunter and check, but I'm not a driver. That's me as a race fan. That's what makes this weekend even worse because now Gibbs is mad about the same move he just pulled. Right. 
right. right. Now, wait a minute. Yeah. Can't have it both ways. Can't have it both ways. So, would it have been okay if it was John Hunter? Because you said after <laughs> Richmond, yeah. he owed you well, one. That's what I don't get. Like, I know he knew John Hunter and Emercheck owed him one, but he had to realize the whole garage looked at that and thought, I can race Ty Gibbs this way. For sure. Everybody can owe Ty Gibbs one. Because that wasn't the only, that wasn't an isolated incident with Nemechek. Correct. That's just kind of how he's established himself. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I have to evaluate driver's actions as a race fan. And as a race fan, I love short track racing because of the beating and the banging. It's totally fine. I guess my point is we watched Denny Hamlin wreck Chase Elliott. Flat wreck him. They didn't fist fight. I'm sure that Chase would love to take a swing. So I just feel like I'm okay, and I don't know the line. You and I had this conversation, right? Because like, then the problem is, well, is shoving okay and not a clenched fit? But I do think, I know it sounds silly, but we're going to have to draw a line somewhere. And I hate it's NASCAR's role, but I guess my point is, when does it get out of NASCAR's hands? When do you land a punch and the local sheriff says, no, no, I'm just going to arrest you now. Right, right. Because, and people can say, oh, you're being crazy. Go to your local short track. Because yeah, that's what this. happens. <laughs> you go to your local short track and someone throws a f- punch. The guy that threw the punch, let me guess, he leaves in the back of sheriff's car. I've, I've seen it firsthand. Yeah. Yeah. So there has to be a time where the event stops and real world begins again. And maybe that time is when the drivers get out. You know, you're no longer in a race. You know, have to be, when I say cordial, I mean a cordial within what's appropriate within the laws and regulations of society, right? Like, so, yeah, maybe I can yell at you. You can like it or not like it. I could call you a name. I could call you a hack, right? Denny Hamlin has all the names, <laughs> right? But maybe it's time to do something about the physical altercations. There were no fights, thankfully, at the Grand Prix of Long Beach and IndyCar. However, there was a fractured right hand for Jimmy Johnson. I just want to get out of here on this. Jimmy Johnson was able to race Saturday and Sunday at Long Beach with a carbon fiber splint that sort of stabilized this fracture in his right hand. Next week, he's got a crucial Indy 500 test. He's got another road course after that. And then, of course, May is all Indy. And we know how big this is for Jimmy and for IndyCar and the racing world in general. I mean, Indy 500 debut for the seven-time NASCAR Cup champion who just finished a career-best sixth at Texas. So as a crew chief and just as somebody who's been in the racing industry as long as you have, Stevie, what's it like to deal with a driver who's kind of nursing an injury while still attempting to race? What, what do you think the challenges are there for Jimmy over the next six weeks? I think, you know, I have no idea how severe the injury is. I do think if you haven't seen it, go to his social media. He does a great job not only talking yeah. you through his injury, but so they showed the about the yeah. how they made the carbon fiber brace and they walked through everything. I mean, Jimmy and it's his amazing. team was totally on that. And, you know, why do people love Jimmy for who he is? That's why, right, is, is he is showing the fan how what he was dealing with and how he dealt with it. So, listen, the IndyCar series, and this is not a, a, a – I don't try to hurt anyone's feelings here, so if I do, I'm sorry. But the Indy 500 is as big as the series. It's as big as the championship. It's the, it's the biggest race in the world. I'm an NASCAR guy. The Indy 500 is the biggest race in the world. So in my mind from – you know, I understand why Jimmy did it. He was out there. He thought he could race. He did what he could do. I'd be having a conversation today. I'd be like, okay. Every discussion we have from here forward is for the Indy 500. So let's talk about what you need with your hand. Can it be healed? Can it be this? Can it be that? It'd be no different than if I had a starting pitcher in the playoff, you know, in baseball, and we're in the playoffs. I'd be like, okay, stop, 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 stop. We, you know, we're not trying to win the pennant. We just got to make the playoffs. How do we, you know, whatever injury you're nursing? So I think that should be the conversation for Jimmy and his team. In my mind. The oval at Indy, why physically challenging, should be better on his hand, especially the bottom of his right hand, because he should be pushing with that hand to turn left and left only. Uh, I know those wheels are a little bit different, but I imagine it would hurt the most pulling, which would be turning right. Hmm. So Barber would be a concern. 
Um, I would even say the Indy Road Course would be a concern because mm-hmm. uh, the Grand Prix leads into Indy 500. Yep. And I don't know their exact schedule, but it seems like they're on the track a ton up there. So it's not like the hand's going to have a lot of time to rest. So if I was part of Jimmy Johnson's group, I would be purely focused on the speedway and what he needs to do. Because here's the problem. I know he can race, but what happens? I mean, he wrecked again in the race. So so what happens at Barber on a restart? You bang, we like, and you re- and you injure it so severely he can't be in it. I would limit. It, he'd be on a pitch count. If I was if I was Jimmy Johnson's guy, he'd be on a pitch count for the speedway. Well, we definitely want to see him healthy because it was great to see him on the pit box with you last year as part of the NBC Sports coverage during the Indy 500 week. And I know you really enjoyed that, but I know you're really looking forward this year to watching him while you're there. It's great. And um, I actually think, look, he showed up at Texas and, and put a great performance on, which got our hopes up even more. Yeah. I think of how he's going to run at the speedway. And I really believe I'm going to be up there for qualifying and I, I, I'm I'm fascinated to see him put those four laps together. It's um, going to be so hard. The four hardest laps in motorsports. You know, I used to think that was uh, overplayed until I sat up there <laughs> myself going into turn one. And I could tell the fans listening that 235 to 245 goes from, oh, that's fast to breathtaking. And watching the cars. So I actually would say the hardest two, the hardest laps are lap three and four. And I would always thought it was the fastest lap. No, 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 no. Not that I was there and watching. Those laps three and four, <laughs> when you're thinking you should still be wide open, but tire grip's going away. I mean, yeah. it's fascinating. You're making all these adjustments in the cockpit. You're trying to hang on to it. Exactly. The average. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you talk about little things like like yeah. hand adjust. You know, there's yeah. a lot of things that Jimmy has to do. Listen, I hope he um, is fine. I'm sure we'll get an update if Jimmy's team continues to update us like he did, but I hope everything heals up and we see him back in the car. Hope to see him as well. And uh, it was great to see you back here. Thanks for being here, man. Great time. Can I come back on a race that everybody's a little more excited about? <laughs> I mean, you kind of brought me it. back. Like, I mean, Let's I've been it. around all year all right. long. You bring me back on, on my favorite after a we flattening st- race from my favorite track we on the circuit. We still have 40 minutes of stuff to talk about. I won't bring you back next week for Bristol Dirt, though. How about that? Nope. I appreciate that. All right. Thanks, Matt. Our thanks again to Steve Letarte for joining us for his 2022 NASCAR and NBC podcast debut. It's always great to have his insight and opinions on the pod. A reminder that we also taped this podcast on camera ahead of NASCAR America Motormouths in our NBC Sports Charlotte studio. All the Motormouths episodes and clips are on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel, along with lots more great content and highlights daily, as well as the on-camera version of this podcast. So make sure you visit and subscribe to the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel. Thanks to NASCAR and NBC producer Emily Conboy for lining up Steve Letarte as a guest. And if you have any NASCAR and NBC podcast feedback, you can send to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.